Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Good morning. It's December 19th, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, a podcast from 24-7 Sports dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. I'm Connor Tapp, and today on the podcast, we're talking to Kenny Jacoby, who reported and wrote Predator Pipeline, a four-part series on the domestic violence and sexual violence epidemic in college athletics, published last week in USA Today. It's pretty heavy stuff, and though we don't describe any particular incident in detail, I suppose I should offer a warning to anyone with particular sensitivity to this subject. Uh, So between this story popping up and the early signing period going on this week, it's been a while since we've caught you up on things like Jeff Halfley signing on to be Boston College's new head coach and Texas hiring Chris Ash to be its new defensive coordinator. We'll dedicate our show on Friday to catching up on some of those odds and ends, and we'll also be rolling out our comprehensive bowl preview series, which we're releasing as bonus episodes starting Thursday evening. But now let's get to our interview with Kenny Jacoby. We're joined now by Kenny Jacoby, who last week published a four-part series for USA Today called Predator Pipeline, in which he comprehensively details the system of often quite deliberate obfuscation that allows the NCAA athletes to transfer from one one school to another after committing sexual violence without ever experiencing any penalty except potentially having to sit out a year due to transfer rules. Uh, Kenny, thanks for coming on the College Football Daily. Thanks so much for having me. So Kenny, I have to level with you. Last week, I clicked on the link to Predator Pipeline, read it, thought it was really impressive work, and then only later realized that I'd only just read the introduction to the four-part series. And I, I say that as a way of illustrating that it's apparent to anyone who reads this just how much work must have been involved. So tell us, how long did it take you to report and write this story? And how did you get started down this road in the first place? Yeah, so I would say the investigation itself, um, I was working on for about a year, um, but some of the groundwork um, actually started three years ago uh, with one particular case that we uh, go into in great length in the investigation, um, and that is a, a case of a University of Oregon football player, um, Tristan Wallace, um, who, when he was a freshman at Oregon, um, he was actually expelled uh, twice for rape. Uh, in two different cases. And um, I started reporting on that case three years ago, but it took me all this time to be able to get all the documents um, as the university was uh, doing its part to keep the whole thing uh, very secret. Um, But I remember uh, several months ago, as I finally got this massive case file and learned, you know, what was happening behind the scenes, I was telling people about it. And um, they were shocked that there was just this Um, enormous lack of regulations about um, athletes who have uh, sexual misconduct in their past and these credible findings and how easily they're just allowed to transfer to other schools. And so I figured that that issue on its own may deserve a bigger look. And as you uh, describe in immense detail in the story, 
schools have a pretty complex system set up to kind of prevent reporters like yourself from accessing this type of information, don't they? They sure do. Um, they have a, a, there's a federal law called FERPA, uh, which is the student privacy law. Um, and initially when it was um, set up, it was intended to just cover things like grades and transcripts, which are things that I think any student wouldn't want to be released out to the public. So totally fair. Um, but that law has been interpreted in such ways that um, schools are using it as sort of a shield uh, to protect, you know, very serious information, including about sexual violence on their campuses um, by saying, you know, whatever happens, we can't talk about it because it's a privacy issue. And uh, so even when it comes to things like, um, you know, police reports and, and the outcomes of disciplinary investigations, you, you still see schools invoking that as a way to prevent people from look on the outside looking in. Uh, sad as it is to say, I think many of these cases taken individually wouldn't, I don't think, seem super noteworthy to a lot of people who cover or follow college football. I still remember the media coverage of Jonathan Taylor, former Alabama player who transferred from Georgia while facing pending domestic violence allegations. And you write about that in the story. And it, it was something that people argued about for a couple of weeks. Paul Feinbaum kind of took him to task for it. And it, then Saban kind of vouched for him as someone who deserved a second chance. And then that was just kind of the end of it. And it ends up being just kind of taken as the way things are done, that a player will do a bad thing and then go through this absolution cycle that gets initiated by leaving his original team and transferring somewhere else. But when you zoom out and look at this issue in the aggregate, as you did for this story, and you look at numbers like the ones you lay out, 28 players since 2014 transferring to another school despite being disciplined for a sexual offense, it starts to feel something that's less easily explained away by mitigating circumstances in this case or that case. And it almost feels like something on the scale of a public health crisis. And I, I wonder if that's something that you thought about as you were working on this project. You know, that's a really good point. Um, that is something that we thought about. And I think that's a lot of the reason why, you know, there hasn't been such a great public awareness of it um, until just recently, um, because it's always written about as just this one-off, one-time thing. Um, you hear about these individual cases, and maybe if you go to that school, you know, you hear it, you hear about it, or you see it, you know, come up on your social media feeds. Um, but if you add all those stories together, you start to see it as uh, the big problem that it is. And so, yeah, among those cases that we found, um, you know, several of them had already been reported out in the media. We went out and separately confirmed that the allegations, you know, raised were true and that the athlete had been indeed disciplined um, for that offense. Um, we also discovered a lot of cases that have never been reported on before. Um, and, and we also know that that number that we came up with, 33 um, athletes, that includes those disciplined by their schools and in criminal court, is just scratching the surface uh, because of what we just talked about, which is that schools you know, refuse to release these disciplinary records, even though Congress said uh, it's a public safety issue, that, that students need to be able to know about this so they can protect themselves. 
As you highlight in the story, the fundamental problem here is that the NCAA has no system of punishment in place for athletes who commit these kinds of offenses. And the fourth part of your story focuses on some potential remedies to this. And the one that features most prominently is the Tracy rule. I wonder if you could walk us through what the Tracy rule is and some of the recent history of the attempts to see it implemented. Yeah, so the Tracy rule is a serious misconduct policy, as they've been dubbed. And it is not the first one, but it is the most comprehensive one. Um, And it's named after Brenda Tracy, who is a rape survivor uh, by college football players uh, from 1998, who in recent years came forward with her story and has since risen to um, become the most visible um, activist in, in the sports community as far as um, sexual violence, um, particularly in college. And um, what it does is it says, you know, uh, under the Tracy rule, um, you can't as a player transfer in uh, if you've been previously disciplined for a serious offense, including sexual assault. Um, And actually what you alluded to before, um, the Jonathan Taylor case prompted the very first um, serious misconduct policy of its kind, which was put in place at the SEC um, in response to uh, that Taylor case. Um, But ever since, um, different conferences and schools and then Brenda Tracy herself have built upon that policy to make it even stronger. And so it's just, it doesn't necessarily prevent, you know, the first incident of sexual violence, but it does say that, okay, if you've done it before, um, we're not going to allow you to, to come play anymore. Um, essentially, you can't play at this school. Uh, the, U- the University of Texas at, An- at San Antonio uh, became the first school to adopt the Tracy rule. Um, so overall, you see uh, UTSA, Indiana University has a similar policy, um, and then six of the NCAA's 33 Division I conferences have um, similar but slightly different rules. Um, But overall, in the NCAA, there is no overarching policy, and so it's a very small fraction of schools that have any policy at all. So in in 2016, I think, Brenda Tracy gets uh, put on the Commission to Combat campus sexual violence and then in the summer of 2018 do they if i i want to i'm not totally sure i have all this right so jump it if i'm wrong they make a recommendation to the ncaa to adopt the tracy rule ncaa wide and they decide not to is that right uh close not quite so they didn't say you know here's the tracy rule we're recommending that um you know, the schools adopt this. Um, They actually just said more broadly, um, we're going to recommend for the board of governors um, to direct all the schools to just consider some sort of legislation. Could be the Tracy rule, could be the SEC rule, could be the Big Sky rule, um, but to consider something um, because most conferences and schools uh, had nothing in place um, at the time and still don't. Um, but even just that that small recommendation of just consider it, uh, the board punted on and it, 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 it didn't act on. So it didn't direct uh, the schools to do that. And here we are over a year later, and there just has been not a lot of progress made on that issue. 
And you mentioned the big sky rule, and that is a rule that creates a framework for kind of putting the burden on the student athlete to self-report instances uh, of, of sexual violence? Yeah, it has a questionnaire um, where athletes are required to fill it out annually and disclose if they've been you know, involved in any criminal investigations or civil proceedings or student conduct investigations around uh, serious misconduct issues like sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, what's interesting about the Tracy rule is it has that same, a very similar questionnaire, but it goes one step further. And rather than just relying on the honor system, you know, for athletes to just fill it out and, you know, people to assume that they're telling the truth, um, it actually requires records checks. Mm. So for any tra uh, transfer coming in, um, it's not just enough for them to mark no on a, you know, marking a box, um, but for the school to actually request the disciplinary records if there are any from that athlete's previous school. Gotcha. Um, so the story's been out in the world for a week. A lot of people have had a chance to react to it, including I think yesterday, Mark Emmert, after working on it for so long, what have you made of its reception now that uh, the story's finally out there? Well, um, you know, it's interesting because um, first I would, I would say that Mark Emmert avoided our repeated requests for, you know, interviews and, and the questions that we sent them for uh, the last month and a half. Um, and he was now at this symposium yesterday on college athlete pay. And during uh, the discussion, the question and answer session, um, the first audience question he got was actually about the USA Today investigation that we published. And so he was sort of cornered in a sense and had to answer it. And that's really the first um, any type of substantive on the record response that we've got from the NCAA. Mm. Um but the, the outcry uh, from people who maybe didn't even know that uh, this was an issue or were tangentially aware because they were aware of one or two cases, uh, but not this, this bigger picture, um, has been really overwhelming. And we've seen a lot of support and even, you know, women's groups like the National Organization for Women um, putting out statements saying, you know, this predator pipeline has to come to an end. Um, and we're continuing to, to push on it and, and see what comes of it. So um, it, it remains to be seen what the long-term impact will be, but I think in the short term, it's been really positive. I, I was kind of surprised to see in your story that Mark Emmer trots out this uh, same excuse for why the NCAA can't act that we saw him recently tried out for why I can't act on name, image, and likeness, which is that, oh, well, you know, it's 50 states, they got all kinds of different laws, and it's all just too complicated. And I'm just like, well, boy, it's a wonder that any, I don't know, <laughs> like, there are lots of national organizations that manage to somehow impose some kind of regulatory scheme across the country with different states and different laws. I, I, I find that defense pretty frustrating. I don't know. I was wondering what you what you thought about it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the NCAA itself is one of those organizations. It already regulates athletes in every state. So, you know, and they do things like test for, you know, marijuana use. And, you know, there are, marijuana has different uh, legalities in every state. So um, it, it's, it's disingenuous for them to say that, um, 
oh, it's so complicated. You know, they have a 440 page rule book that applies to every athlete in the country. Um, and it's a very complex rule book uh, if you've ever had a chance to look at it. Um, but they, they seem to use that excuse when it's an issue that they are not interested in acting on. Mm. Um, as opposed, you know, this is a big giant organization with lots of lawyers. Um, they can certainly do something about it. All right. Well, you can find Predator Pipeline at gatehousenews.com forward slash Predator Pipeline. It's really tremendous, albeit depressing work. Kenny Jacoby, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the College Football Daily. As I mentioned earlier, our bowl preview series will start hitting your feeds this evening with me and Trey previewing the Makers Wanted Bahamas Bowl and the Tropical Smoothie Cafe Frisco Bowl. And if you would like to pick the bowl games along with us, we have a link to a CBS Sports Bowl Pick'em group in today's show notes. All you need to do is pick the games against the spread and you could walk away with five grand in cash, it's totally free to enter. And if you pick wisely, you could be walking away with five stacks. So if you're already going through the trouble of listening to these bold previews, why not at least profit off of your knowledge? That's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. For Trey Scott, who is on his way back from Fort Lauderdale, and our producer, Tony Levitt, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you on Thursday evening with the start of our bold previews, and then again on Friday morning for the next regular episode of the College Football Daily.